Welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Lewis Keynes and our why, the purpose for what we do is simple, to be better educators and to be better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning for everyone regardless of role or rank or responsibility, to be willing to listen, learn and then hopefully share what they've listened and learned with others too. I'm joined as ever by my pal Alan. Thank you Lewis and really looking forward to diving deeper into understanding how leaders with an infinite mindset translate this across to their teams. We want to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses, real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. And as ever we're learning, we want your feedback, we really have enjoyed reading through lots of feedback from lots of helpful people recently on things that you feel we could get better at and we're working on those and also some really positive reviews on the things that we're doing well, and we hope to continue to do those. Um, if you do have any opinions or feedback, please get in touch with us via Twitter. Alan and I are on there. Um, and all our content for Infinite Leaders Live is available on IGTV, on YouTube, and on all podcast providers, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And a reminder that anything that you need from, from the work that we do and, and the things that we're trying to share is available on theinfinitelearners.com. So... Listen, learn, and share with your colleagues and friends. Uh, and Alan, let's get stuck in. Yeah, get your pens and papers ready. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom coming out of the show today. Uh, Nate Babcock is a PE teacher, basketball coach from California, USA. He's passionate about trying to be better and helping others to do the same. Nate is an advocate of the power of play and has developed a unique teaching philosophy based around this. His blog titled Emancipation is full of inspiring ideas and resources. So Nate, welcome to the show. And uh, tell us a little bit about your journey towards emancipation. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Uh, okay, so my journey. Um, I would say that, you know, it's most of it was based around coaching. So I spent, you know, I've lived my life in California and, uh, for 20 years, I coached high school basketball, and basketball was my life for almost those 20 years. And that's what I wanted to do professionally. I thought I might be, you know, somewhere in the NBA as a scout or an assistant coach. Um, and But luckily for me, it didn't quite work out that way because I was able to, uh, through coaching, meet my wife, and we have two children. And um, so thank goodness, you know, the, the professional route never worked because I think, uh, you know, there's no way my life could have been any better. Um, but that's really what got me started into teaching. So, you know, I've been teaching uh, elementary PE for almost as long, 18 to 20 years, somewhere around there. Um, so I, <clears throat> I began the journey of teaching really as a coach because I wanted to, um, it was a job to have, teaching PE was a job that I could have while I was trying to become, you know, uh, it, it was, I really wanted to become a, a, a strength conditioning coach in the NBA or like a scout uh, doing a lot of player development stuff was really my interest and whether that would just be working on skills like shooting or footwork or something or strength and conditioning. Um, or like I said, the scout um, area would be something I was, I was very much interested in. Um, but you couldn't just go right into that out of college. You know, you had to have a job in the meantime while you were working your way up and paying your dues so teaching PE was just kind of, well, that would make sense. Let's do that. And so I didn't, I didn't start off with a love for teaching at all. Um, but I was lucky enough to be surrounded by uh, mentors and coaches who, who were about teaching. And these were, there were professional coaches who, um, like to them, that's what coaching was. It was teaching. And every little detail mattered. And, um, you know, I kind of grew up at a, a camp in Santa Barbara, California, called uh, Snow Valley. And um, I was surrounded by, by um, guys that were college coaches and college teachers. And so really, really just kind of, I think, impressed upon me the, the importance of the teaching aspect of coaching. Uh, so I was lucky in that regard. So I started my coaching career really, really prioritizing the teaching aspects of it. Um, and I really... Uh, enjoyed reading from coaches like John Wooden and other people, you know, and, and these people were essentially philosophers. And so for me, that was, that start was really crucial that I had these people around me and, and, you know, I've always been interested in things anyway and curious and love to read. And, you know, I've been into philosophy for, for a very long time. And, 
So um, when you kind of combine all that stuff, when you combine these coaching mentors of mine and, and a love for philosophy and really digging deep down into things, you know, coaching was never just something that you just kind of did that I did as, as a coach. Like I just coached the way other people coached. Like I really dug deep in, into what I was doing. Um, and there's more details, but what I'll do is I'll, I'll skip to uh, a professor that I had in college. His name was Ken Revisa. Uh, he was a uh, professor at Cal State Fullerton, and they had a very good college baseball team. And he worked with their baseball team, and they ended up winning a couple national championships. And he worked with some of the other uh, teams on campus, too, like the gymnastics team. And he worked with professional athletes, you know, Olympic athletes, uh, professional teams. And uh, he was doing that while he was a professor. And he was a pioneer in the um, the the sports psychology, um, what would you call it? I guess you can call it profession. Um, and interesting side note with him too, his, uh, his main influence was like in college's philosophical influence was uh, Eleanor Matheny. And Eleanor Matheny is a really big influence in, in physical education. She was also Scott Kretschmar's professor. So Ken Revisa and Scott Kretschmar, who is one of my favorite um, physical education philosophers and who's who's kind of like the mind behind you know meaningful physical education which is uh gaining some big inertia right now um so ken revisa and scott kretschmar who right now to me is one of my biggest influences now back when i was in college it was ken revisa they both shared the same college professor which was eleanor Matheny. so her, her influence really was big on me through ken revisa and then again through scott kretschmar uh, which is just kind of Kind of funny how they were they were classmates in college but so ken revisa as a sports psychologist he got us doing all sorts of things in class like we did zazen we would sit up against the wall and meditate uh, we were reading phil jackson uh, man's search for meaning by victor frankel and this was a history and philosophy of human movement class and so why are we reading this stuff why are we getting into existentialism and phenomenology um and Eastern thought, like Zen and the art of archery, uh, but it had everything to do with uh, sport, perform performance, and coaching, and eventually teaching as well, I, I came to realize. But that's kind of a, a big nutshell of, of my, my journey there is it was the basketball thing, the coaching thing, and then the teaching kind of arose out of that. And then at some point, I really realized the the importance of teaching, even though I, I took it seriously from the get-go because I had those mentors that took teaching seriously, like I mentioned. But it's but that was because I thought it was important to be a good teacher, so I wanted to be one. But at some point, things uh, changed for me where I realized the just the significance of education um, and the importance of it in creating like the next system, the be the next better system, you know, a better world. And so now to me, you know, sports and, and coaching just pales in comparison to the importance of, of education. So now that's, that's my priority. But it, it took a long time of teaching and coaching before I shifted priorities. Mm. Interesting, just for, for, for the viewers' benefit more than anything, to give a little background to how we met Nate. Nate was the, um, the basketball coach of a good friend of Alan I's and colleague, Melissa Jacob, who's appeared on a, a previous episode of Infinite Leaders Live. And she talks really enthusiastically about how you brought in some of those things you touched upon there, maybe some of the Eastern practices and the, the more holistic philosophical approaches into her coaching uh, and really started to, to get her to reflect and think about what she was doing as a, as a player a little bit more. And one of the conversations that we've had with MJ quite recently was that maybe at this time, that wasn't something that she was aware of and, and she didn't really realize the benefits of those. And that's something that's come as, we, as we've got and as she's got a little bit older. Can, can you tell us a bit more about that philosophy in there and, and what, what brought that about? How has it changed over the years for you? And, and where are you at now? What, what, what is your philosophy for um, what you speak so enthusiastically about, about physical education and about physical activity. So some of what you just asked me kind of broke up. It got a little choppy there, but I think I heard the beginning. So some of the philosophy that, that goes back to what I was doing with, with uh, MJ back in high school, which was coming from really uh, Ken Revisa, Dr. Revisa. And um, 
and a lot of the Eastern philosophy that we are studying was essentially, it was about being present, being in the moment, you know, detaching from the result as best as you possibly can, focusing on the process. Um, we talked a lot about peak experiences then too, you know, flow states, things like that. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do as a coach was, you know, if, if you wanted athletes to perform well, it probably would be a good idea to figure out what sorts of things coaches do to interfere with good performance. And there's a whole long list of things that coaches do to interfere with performance. Uh, and I just, I didn't want to make those mistakes. And matter of fact, the, the longer that I coached, the more that I struggled watching other coaches, you know, coach in a game or the way that they just treated people. Um, I, the more and more I coached, the less and less, you know, I respected coaches. Whereas when I was younger, I thought, wow, that's a great coach. And then as I got older, I, I thought, I don't know that that's such a great coach. But um, with Dr. Revisa, what he did was he really got us to be present in the moment, maybe come up with a couple strategies. Like when you walked into the gym, you know, you, you just, you kind of had a place to go to. Like, here's a spot I'm going to look at when I need, I need to reset, or I'm going to take two breaths, or I'm going to get big before I walk in and get started. And then just the way that he treated people, the way that he spoke to them and respected them. And we just asked them probing questions. And he had this great image he used to show us where it was like a person opening up like this, looking inside. And which I, to me is brilliant because I think this is what, what we all need to do a better job of doing. It's like, why do I do what I do? Why do I feel the way I feel? What are my values? What am I trying to accomplish here? Just having that really deep self-awareness and self-control to me is is really what we want to facilitate in education anyways, because I think that's what promotes democracy. If you have really good self-awareness and self-control, I think you make the world a better place. Yeah, when was your tipping point, Nate? When did you realize that power of education? So I've had lots of tipping points and they're all kind of blurry to me. It's really hard to single some out. Um, but I would say that the tipping point going from, let's say coaching being the priority to teaching being the priority, um, and when I say teaching, what I really mean is like education, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and the learning, not so much my teaching before teaching was a priority. I wanted to be a good teacher, but now it's not about being a good teacher. It's about making sure that good education is happening and I facilitate it. But I would say that shift occurred. I mean, I can't point to a moment, but I can tell you some things that I realized in my own practices with I was doing some things that looked good on paper and, and people would come and observe my class and say, wow, that's really good stuff. Like you have the kids taking notes and, and doing all these different things and it looked academic too and, and they were moving quite a bit. And so they thought, wow, this is really good. But one of the things I realized was that uh, a lot of the things we were doing at this time, it really just worked for some kids and not all kids. And then when I had to grade some of these kids, I'd look at these kids and say, wow, this kid doesn't, is not able to get the grade that this kid got because they didn't do as well on this test. And then I would think about, you know, I only have these kids twice a week, 50 minutes at a time or 45 minutes at a time. And I had like 100 kids at a time. So any, anything we did um, with our wellness stuff, you know, like our, the things that we covered in terms of wellness and health, and we would test them on bones and muscles or fitness concepts or, you know, body concepts or something. We didn't really cover it very much. We covered it briefly. I, I gave them time to, to review it every day, but then I'd give them a test. And then I would think that was really good teaching. You know, you teach it and you test it. Wow. That's, that's really good teaching. <laughs> At some point I really kind of turned the microscope back onto myself and realized that I was really not helping a lot of kids. And, and then especially grading them was not helping them that way. Because to me, a lot of those kids, they deserve the highest grade you could possibly get. They did their best. They were kind to others. They enjoyed the process. And yet here, here I was giving them a test on some things that really were, were insignificant in their lives. They weren't going to help them in the moment anyway. And, and I had to judge them based on that. And it was only because I really valued it or somebody taught me to value it. And I hadn't quite really um, looked deeply into why I was doing what I was doing that was the tipping point for me was when I, when I saw that it was, it was an unfair practice. It wasn't reaching as many kids as I was hoping it would. And it was getting in the way of a lot of um, enjoyment in the class. And once I ditched some of these things, the, the, I mean, kids always enjoyed my class, but once I ditched that stuff, the, the enjoyment level went way up. Um, 
And because what I did was I, we, we added more by subtracting. We did a lot less things and I just really narrowed the focus. I just really narrowed the focus to just a few things so that, you know, wherever they were, if they're at a store or with other people playing a game or playing for a team, that they would hear these three major things that I always talked about and that we always talked about. Those things were more likely to affect their behavior outside of school. When I tried to do all these other things, it was too much, but it looked really good. And you would go and observe and you'd say, wow, look at they're moving and they're writing and they're, they're in groups and they're doing these study things and, and he's grading them, you know, look at, oh, he's, he's teaching and he's testing. So therefore it's good education. And, and now people would probably come and say, I don't know if that's good education, but to me, I think it's a thousand times better. What, what were those three things Nate, that you talked about? Well, they weren't necessarily always three things, but it, it's, it's usually just been a few things. So one of them, and I'll just say right now, one of them is um, like we have one law in my class. So it, it used to be that, you know, we would in the beginning of the year, you cover rules and things like this. Um, and eventually I wouldn't cover rules in the beginning. We would just try to enjoy ourselves early. And then I would chip away at introducing rules as the first month went on. Then eventually I just did away with rules. You know, agreements are much better than rules. Instead of me telling them, we could come up with agreements together. Hey, we've agreed on these things. Um, but even, even then, it's still hard to take 100 kids at a time, you know, five periods a day and, and come up with all these agreements. We still do that to a degree. But so the one thing, we have one law in my class, and that's do no harm. That's the law. So really, everything we do in the class, we, we look at it through that lens. You know, if there's a problem with something, I can say, Right, so you see how this would cause harm, or do you know why I'm talking to you right now? Well, it caused harm. Okay, how do you think it caused harm? How did it feel to be that person? Or what can we do better next time? Um, that's the law, and that's that's what I hold them most accountable to. I don't hold them accountable to effort like I used to. You know, where if we're running a couple laps or something, I'd be like, "Come on, you can do it. Go, go." I still will try to encourage them, but. If they want to walk, who am I to say, no, you have to run? Or back then when I used to, we used to run two laps and we would time it and then we'd have a, a range. You know, if you're between, you know, this time and this time, you'd get the highest grade. If you're um, in between this time and this time, you'd get the next best grade. Um, to me, that just doesn't work anymore. Uh, I definitely want to, you know, challenge kids in meaningful ways. But to me, I just begin now with do no harm. And with everything we do, we can always come back and revisit that. You know, did, did, let's look and see what we did today, everybody. Think about, was there a, was there a moment that you, you did harm? You know, and, and where might that have been? The other thing we talk about would be uh, kind of like their job, everybody's job, their responsibilities to take care of each other. So we really have two major things. It's, it's do no harm, you know, and that's kind of phrased negatively. So in a positive sense, what we would say is take care of each other. Like that's our job. So I can say to somebody, all right, we're having a problem here. What's the problem? Yes, you're right. So we caused harm, all right? What, what's a better way of doing this? You know, either, either you don't do harm at all. So you, you just, we're gonna remove you, you remove yourself, you walk away. We're not gonna cause harm. But the better thing we could do is to take care of each other. So rather than doing that, what's a way that you could take care of that person? And if somebody says, I'm not interested in taking care of that person, I could say, you know, I, I respect that. But remember, you cannot harm. You don't have the right to harm somebody. So now, when we went to uh, distance learning, when, when COVID hit, you know, the, we, we tell, here's, the, here's like the third thing, let's say. Um, PE means play everywhere in our class. So when, and it can mean play with everyone. Um, when COVID hit, and now we weren't able to do PE like normal. We weren't able to do a lot of things like normal. When I reached out to the students and the families, one of the things I was able to say was, well, we're, we're prepared for this. I mean, we know we're not gonna harm anybody. So you're not gonna go around people and get too close to them, you know, wear your mask. We're not gonna do any harm. We're gonna take care of each other. So check in on each other, make sure we're all, we're all doing well, um, figure out how you can take care of each other. Cause you know, a lot of people are stressed right now and in tough situations. So how can we take care of each other? And um, so we did those two things in class. We can do them now as well. We're not going to do any harm. You're going to take care of each other. And 
could you still play? Yeah, you can play at home. You can play outside. And if you can't go outside, can you play in your home? And we do a lot of creative things in class where students work together to invent games, to, um, to kind of transform the ordinary mundane objects in life and transform them into like playgrounds, like stairs. You know, we would say to students, you know, what else could stairs say beside walk up me or walk down me? You know, stairs could say, you know, jump down me or, you know, skateboard off me or do parkour off me. There's all sorts of things stairs could do. And we would practice doing these things in class. We would look around and say, what could that be? What could that be? What could this say? What else could this say? So we had already practiced transforming the environment into a playground. We had already practiced doing no harm. We had already practiced taking care of each other. And the point of all that is, if I try to do too much, I don't think that those three things would, would be as impactful. It would be too many things that I don't think necessarily really amount to much anyways right now. You know, when, like we, I posted something on Twitter the other day about, you know, students move in class because they either, they have to or they want to. They're not moving in PE class because it's good for them because we tell them it's good for them. It's good for you right now, or it's good for you in the future. That's not why they're moving in our class. They're moving in class because they have to, because they want to. But eventually, you know, they might want to move because it now, you know, the health aspects of it are more meaningful. Um, so right now, what can stick with, with kids? It can't be a ton of things. So for me, what I choose is, is those three things, essentially. Right? Do no harm take care of each other. And let's, if we play everywhere, that, that's a good life. And you're making other people's lives good too. And, and play is a very ambiguous term, by the way, too. You know, exercise can be play for somebody, you know, Steph Curry on the Golden State Warriors, when he practices his dribbling, I mean, he's really into it. And that's a lot of work for a lot of people. That's not play for them, but that's his play. So work can be play too. It's an ambiguous term. And what I don't want to do with my students is, um, take something that would be their work and play at the same time and never give them a chance to find out what that is. Or at least if they say, this is my work and play at the same time, I would never want to say, no, 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 you have to do these things because it's part of the curriculum and I have to grade you. Like, I, I don't want to do that. I don't think that's a, respect, a respectful way of, of educating. So a lot of what you're talking about, if I've understood rightly, Nate, is, is about giving children the opportunity to play, to express themselves, to be creative and to, to have, opinions and to hopefully buy into that tell us a bit more about what what the purpose of what you're doing is and, and that vision and, and, and what's the end goal what are you trying to aim for with it so i think the end goal i mean these things are really hard to articulate in the last three years or so i've worked really hard to try to figure out a really um simple way to articulate it but ultimately it comes down to well-being for me i think you know it these are obviously my values that I've been talking about here. Um, what I want to do is I want to, I want to begin with values that we can pretty much all agree to. Now I'm speaking about myself and my context and specifically in the United States. I, I don't try to begin with my values. I try to begin with the country's uh, moral foundations, let's say, which in the Declaration of Independence really begins with you know, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all. I think that lays the moral foundation for this country. Now, it doesn't mean that because it was written on paper that this country's ever really taken it seriously, because <laughs> history shows that we've really struggled doing that. Um, and in the Declaration of Independence, it says, you know, everybody's endowed with this, these rights these inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To me, that just means well-being. Everybody's trying to be well. My favorite philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, says, all life is trying to live, to live well, to live better. All life. And he doesn't make a distinction between organic and inorganic life, by the way. He considers it all organic. Um, and, and he might call that creative advance. All life is a form of creative advance. It's always compelled to creatively advance all life. So to me, when, when, you're, when you have these capabilities as an organism and you express and you activate them, um, you have these capabilities that are getting exercised. 
uh, that goes a long way into, into creating a sense of well-being, that subjective feeling of well-being. And the founders um, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, to me, that's what they're saying. They're saying, you know, everybody's endowed with these inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They're saying everybody's trying to be well. That's what they're saying. Everybody's trying to be well. That's what's equal about everybody. You're not going to find a human who isn't trying to be well. So rather than a tyrant, you know, governing us, we will govern us because we all equally matter. So the power comes from the consent of the governed. So what that means for me is that's what I'm trying to facilitate in terms of, of my vision of education. Everybody's trying to be well. You know, everybody wants to live and they want, you know, liberty in the pursuit of happiness. And we need to have the ability in order to make that happen. You have to govern well. You have to govern yourself. You have to govern with others well. And that term consent is really important there because that means everybody's included. And one of my favorite ways of describing this is um, Bruno Latour says emancipation. So going back to that emancipation, right? Uh, Bruno Latour says emancipation does not mean, mean freed from bonds. It means well attached. And so the, the fact of the matter is we are all attached. You know, we are, everything that we do matters. Everything, absolutely everything you do and think matters. What everybody does matters to everybody else. It, it impacts the world. Um, so the point is to be well attached. So that, that's what I'm trying to do. That's the vision. That's the end game, essentially, is to facilitate well-being, but we're all attached. So the point is to be well attached. So what PE does is it, it functions at a couple of different levels. It, it can help me be well attached personally in terms of my sensory motor capabilities, my self-awareness, self-control, things like that. But it also facilitates this well-attaching between myself and the others in the class because we're in this very, very unique, intimate contact with each other, you know, um, with sport or games or dance. Uh, we play with each other. So when we play with each other and we're in that intimate contact, we, we, we can reorient ourselves to each other. Rather than that person being an object, that person is somebody like me. You know, so it's a way to, to both see difference and similarity at the same time. It's, it helps us to become well-attached. We're already attached, but the point is to be well-attached. So that's, that's what I'm trying to facilitate, but it's not just because that's, those are my values. I think that is what the, the states of America are supposed to be united around, is this commitment to being well-attached because we're all trying to be well and we all have to do it together. We have to deliberate together. We have to decide together how to do it well. We're all attached, so we've got to, we've got to be well-attached. So that to me essentially um, is the end game. And, and would it be right to say that to, to be well-attached with yourself and with others, you, you've got to have a strong knowledge of who you are, of your identity, of the values that you've got and the behaviors you want to show, and then also, in turn, the skills to be able to collaborate and cooperate with others. Is, is that what you're getting at with this, this phrase of being well attached? Right. So I think, let's begin with what you said at the end there. So education to me has to be dialogical. We have to be able to, um, we, can, we can have inner dialogue, right? We can, so reflection is dialogical. You know, why did I do that? How did I feel about that? What was it like to be me in that moment? How did it feel? Did I like it? Did I not like it? What about that? Did I like? What about that? Did I not like? In the future, what would I like? Now, why would I like that in the future? Why would I not like that in the future? That, that sort of inner dialogue is crucial. And that's the same kind of dialogue that we want with others. So we want to be able to, to, to discuss with others, here's how it felt to be me, or how did it feel to be you? Can you tell me that? And I think every class a lot of the time we spend in school should be in dialogue with others, you know, taking different perspectives, um, practicing, discussing and dialoguing with others, practicing, disagreeing with others. You know, we try to model with, with our kids, you know, how to, um, how to conflict. Well, like, I don't want to remove conflict. We're going to conflict. We're going to disagree. We should disagree. 
you know, we don't want to wipe out and erase difference. Difference is great. Difference is amazing. And, but we're all going to disagree at some point and often. And disagreement is not a problem. We have to learn how to conflict well. So we want to embrace conflict. What does bad conflict look like? What does good conflict look like? So we try to model that so that we can, we can teach people how to say to somebody, I don't like it. When you do that, it makes me feel this way. Mm. So, so you know, you basically, you're bringing empathy into that. And what, what kind of role does empathy play within physical education? Well, I think it all comes down to feeling anyway. Um, there's a great term called N kinesthesia. So the N means with, and you know, the, the kinesthesia, the, the sense of moving, right? There are plenty of scholars who have written about this that are um, the basis and the foundation for our like linguistic skills and our conceptual skills are essentially our embodied kinetic um, nature. You know, our, our bodies moving with others, that that is how we make sense of the world, that you make sense of the world by moving with it. You know, nothing is static in life. Everything is always moving, everything. And you are constantly moving and you are constantly moving with, like there is no thing that is, this is what Alfred North Whitehead talks about. There, there's no such thing as a thing. All things are processes. All things are systems of relationships. And if you look at, at, the, at the quantum view, if you really were to, to zoom into things, you would all of a sudden find that where did the, solid, the solidness go, right? You have space between, you have electrons and all these things. And all of a sudden now, whatever was solid is not solid anymore. Ultimately, to our core, we are a system of, of relationships, you know, of networks and patterns where your processes. So empathy to me is absolutely at the core, but you, it's, you can't help but be empathetic because that is the only way that you are able to even progress and live in the first place is because your identity and your, your being itself is constituted by your movement in relation with others. So the key there is to uh, direct our attention and attune to those others, how does it feel and might, how, how might it feel to be them in relation to me? What, what is my influence and impact on them and how do they feel? And then vice versa, you know, how is that making me feel? What power do I have in this process? And so that's what we're, we're trying to, um, to facilitate, those sort of skills. So I would absolutely say it's, it's empathy uh, and it's a whole lot of other things too. Yeah, I love all that, Nate. And it's certainly in today's world, we're going towards those transferable skills. Education, though, is still primarily grades-driven. Would you agree? Uh, it's how can we measure these transferable skills that we've talked about? And we often get this question to us all the time. You've got these philosophies, you've got these ideas, but how do we measure them and how are we going to give kids grades? And I know you touched upon that earlier. Yeah, well, I think grades are a really big problem because I think a lot of school is designed around that process of grading, which is really, you know, a form of evaluation and judgment um, according to a certain group of people and their particular values, which yeah. may have nothing to do with the values of these particular people over here. Um, you know, you could say, uh, like, we have these notions of success, like this is a successful person or this is an educated person. Um, this is a skilled or competent person. But we've had educated, successful, skilled, and competent people throughout history that have done, that have murdered millions of people and created tons of economic <laughs> destruction, which would include myself too, just by virtue of participating in, in this world. Um, we don't necessarily, I think David Orr once said this. Um, he, he has a book called Earth in Mind. It's really good. But I think he said something like, we don't need more successful people. Because the, the way that we define success, it typically includes a whole lot of damage and destruction. Um, so grades sometimes really just perpetuate and reproduce that very system. Just by virtue of the way that they are structured and what they will evaluate and what they will, um, what they will value over other things that you could value instead. So yeah, grades to me, I really struggle with grades. Um, assessment to me can be a bad word at times, but it can be all sorts of things. Assessment can be lots of things. What I try to do 
is include the student as much as possible into the assessment, where instead of me doing the evaluating, they're doing the evaluating. Now, I can still become a partner in the process of their growth. You know, it's something we do together. There's a great anthropologist named Tim Ingold who talks about education being correspondence. And you'll often say right after that, you know, co dash or hyphen respondence. You respond together. And typically teaching is this top-down approach, you know, very authoritarian. And so, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier with the Declaration of Independence, well-being for all, another way of saying that is democracy. But you're going to have a really hard time creating more democracy if everything you do in education is authoritarian and dictatorial and, and, and you know, you're surrounded by a bunch of fascists, in a sense, who, who just want to make you do things, um, even though they're well-intentioned. So to me, the process needs to be m way more democratic. So if you're going to grade, make it a democratic process where we work together to come up with, you know, some sort of grade if you have to grade. Ultimately, grades should be feedback. And so I can provide feedback, but I don't want to provide um, this external judgment or evaluation, you know, uh, on a student because they may not be interested in the things that I'm interested in or the curriculum says they should be interested in. And they have every right to not be interested in that. But I think we also want to be transparent. We want to be able to communicate with parents. If a student is not interested in these things, we can say student doesn't appear to be interested in these things. We don't have to say bad student. And then my job would be, you know, how can we, how can we, you know, meaningfully challenge you? How can we um, make this more positively meaningful? How can I make this thing right here have a much more positive connotation? And that's where the correspondence happens. I have to look at that student, speak with the student, listen to the student, just blend with the student essentially in order to create the environment that works for that student, which is obviously very, very hard. And if you're expected to measure things in linear ways and provide a solid, and, you know, a solid number, A means this or B means this or whatever, um, it wipes out the messiness and the nonlinearity of learning, which to me, again, goes back to democracy. And that's not very democratic. That's much more authoritarian. So I don't want to perpetuate that system. But still, I work within the system. So what I can do is be creatively maladjusted. Right? Martin Luther King talked about that, be creatively maladjusted. And so that's kind of, um, you know, the advice that I try to give people. I, like, you can't change the system, but you can, you can embody the, the change where you're at. You can be creatively maladjusted. You can embody the next best system. And so that's, that's the point. So how can grades and assessment and measurement do that? Well, you have to incorporate the student. It has to be a form of correspondence. You have to work together. You have to include their voice and their choice in it too. And it can't just be top down. Yeah. What would what would your educational utopia then? If you could design your perfect school and system, what would it look like? Well, I think the first word that comes to mind is it would go slow. We wouldn't be in such a rush. We don't have to know that many things. And I think it would have to begin with what's, it has to have this, this weird orientation both toward the present and the future. Um, and it has to be, I think, deeply, deeply intertwined and connected with the community and the needs of the community. I, I, I've heard somebody once say something like education is for communities of well-being. And I really like that because I think that um, at least in my experience, I don't think school is very well connected with the community. And really a school, I think the, the, the boundaries or the borders between a school and a community should be really, really fuzzy. And I think rather than trying to learn about so many abstract things and things that you'll need to know for the future, I think we could practice taking care of each other now, you know, gardening, um, speaking with local authorities like a good example would be something like um you know play spaces what sort of play spaces would you have in a community if a, if students did something like a, a project where they were to look at the community identify the places where they could play identify the barriers to play and then the people who um who have power to to make decisions regarding these issues and they would connect with them and then you might have these you know school councils class councils and community councils 
where you really can take all these things and, and um, you work at them in ways that are not just, uh, you know, bound to a classroom yeah. and, and, and in, a, in an abstract way. Like you would actually literally go and speak to these people, come up with solutions and they could build things. Um, like I said, grow things like garden, practice, democratic um, dialogue, discussion, debate, whatever you want to call it creating laws at the school. I think we got to slow down, give kids chances and opportunities to, uh, to, to dive into things they want to dive into. But we absolutely do need to, uh, we do need to take, you know, a, a critical eye onto the community and, and the larger community and society too in school. I think we do. I think we do need to, this is where teachers I think are really important. I think there's a problem with saying, look, we should just let kids do what they want. Because some people do kind of make that argument. Um, but I think what we do need to do is at least say at some point, like we want you to do a whole lot of things you want to do and like to do. And, and I'm going to come in and try to meaningfully challenge you too. So there's growth. And I may expose you and introduce you to different things that maybe you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, um, you know, be interested in, but, but you might, so let's try this. Okay. You're not, okay. No big deal. But at the same time, I think we still have to stop for a moment and say, okay, what are the values we're working with? What are the community values? Do we have community values? Do we have a country's values? What are these? Make these explicit. Okay, now what's going on here in our community? What's going on in our classroom? What's going on over here? And how does that line up with our values? Like, I think we have to take time to do that collectively in schools too. You know, so mm -hmm. I think we want to go all sorts of divergent ways. But I think those moral foundations of, let's say, the United States, the well-being for all democracy, I think we have to converge in schools there, too. We, we cannot just leave that to chance. I think we have to really practice democracy and the do-no-harm stuff really well. And then from there, you know, through meaning, we can let them explore, too. Um, Nate, what, what are the three core values that you really live and breathe on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, I'd, boy... You know, I would say do no harm is, is probably the thing. That's what I try to be most aware of. You know, and I, I think it's really important to just try to communicate openly and honestly. I think that's um, really important. There's, there's a, great, a great little book written by a few people, but I know one of them is, is a professor named uh, Daniel Dustin. It was something like the, it's called, the philosophical foundations of the um, parks and recreation, something like that. And I can't remember if the title of the book is worth ethic or they just, they talk about the worth ethic in it, but I think it's like philosophical foundations of parks and recreation. Um, but in it, they, they, they introduced the notion of the worth ethic. And this to me is one of the most brilliant things I've ever read. And it's, it's three points. So I guess I could say these might be the three. Um, and by the way, the worth ethic aligns really neatly with, with the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, which aligns really neatly too with Whitehead saying that everything uh, aims to live, to live well, to live better. So it, it neatly aligns. But the three things are, um, number one, respect is a birthright. So respect being number one, like I respect you because you're like, you're like me, you're trying to be well also. So you get respect from me just by virtue of you being alive because you're trying to be well, just like me. So now there's a couple of different types of respect, right? There might be some really, really destructive people out there doing very terrible things. Do I respect them? I don't respect them, but do I respect them at the level of, of our humanity? Yes. So I won't take away their humanity. But that's, that's the first one is, is that respect as a birthright. So respect, number one, um, freedom to grow is their second point, freedom to grow. So there are three points here, respect as a birthright and freedom to grow. So I think in your relationships with people, you don't want to control them. You don't want to need them so much that they have to fulfill your needs. I think you would almost flip it. You, you need to give them freedom to grow. And the reason why you do that is because you respect them. And the third one would be opportunities for choice. So I think for me, um, you know, if I'm making decisions in life, 
whether it's purchasing decisions or the ways that I'm speaking to people, if, if it's not respectful. Um, and, and, you know, I mentioned this earlier, conflict. You can still disrespect and have heated discussions with people and be honest and, and conflict well. And that's not disrespect. That's still respect. I think, matter of fact, when you respect people, um, you can do that really well. Like you have those difficult conversations. That's a part of respect. But so just, but in my relations with others, whether that comes through speaking or, um, you know, being a father or a husband or a teacher or my purchasing decisions, um, if, if my decisions aren't in line with those, if they're not providing freedom to grow, if it's, if it's not providing opportunities for choice, then I probably need to, uh, to change what I'm doing, which, which is really hard to do because obviously um, if I keep buying things that are, that are coming in little plastic containers, that, that surely is not giving, you know, many parts of the ecosystem freedom to grow because it's environmentally destructive. And so that's an area of my life that, you know, I try to have more awareness of and, and, and try to do less of, which is very hard to escape that. But um, so I would say, you know, that um, I want to empower in my, in my interactions with others. I don't want to take away. I want to give life. I want to empower and, and those three points to me are, are really, really crucial. That respect, freedom to grow, and opportunities for choice. Wow, and, and, and the, the detail and the minutia that you're going into there, even around the choice of, of plastics and the, and the purchases you make, you know, it sounds like something you've, you've obviously considered for a while and, and you really live and breathe on a day-to-day basis. I don't think many people would consider buying plastic not giving the environment a freedom to grow unless that's pointed out to them. That's a, it's a really nice insight there. Right. Well, I think this is two things that we want to do in education is, well, the sort of people that we want to create, let's say, the sort of people we want to create uh, in education are, are people who see in relation. So they, they see that everything is connected, right? We're all attached. And so they, they understand that we are attached and then they would event, they can, they can help to become more well-attached through their actions. Um, so seeing in relation is really crucial. Understanding that everything matters. You know, the people you see in front of you today are the result of hundreds and hundreds of years of history. Um, the decision that I make today when I buy this, it's, it affects lots of people and ecosystems across the world. And so if we see in that relation, we're much more informed and we're better able, I think, to make better decisions because we see the consequences of our decisions if we see in relation. The second type of person, if we want a person to be two things, is we want them to see in relation, but we want them to feel alive. Because I think that when you feel alive, you respect other life. If you don't feel alive, I think you tend to take it from others. And I think you can look at uh, you know, dictators throughout history who, who tend to be really destructive and I don't think they feel alive. You know, Hitler's a, a, an interesting example because Hitler was an artist. He tried to get into art school a couple times and was denied. And, you know, perhaps that was his thing. That was where he felt the most alive. And he has this, this sort of, these, um, these capabilities that he wanted to express and activate and refine and extend. And they were, they were very much a part of him. And it couldn't happen. And so he didn't feel alive. And if you don't feel alive, what do you tend to do? If you don't feel like you have power, well, you take it from others. So for me, the, the um, seeing in relation and feeling alive. So the way that you relate to people, the things that we're doing in class, we want them to feel alive. And, and we want them to see in relation. And um, so for me, I think, you know, basically all these things that we've talked about, if we, if we keep it all in mind, I think that's what we do. We help create people who feel alive and see in relation, and that translates into more democracy or a better world. Yeah, the, I love the fact that it's all about transferable skills, and certainly the way we're going in the future is about that, and it is coming away from just being teaching physical skills. Uh, it's so much more than that. We're going to wind yeah. it in with our quick-fire questions, Nate, and could you start us off by just telling us what book you're reading at the moment? Okay. So it got choppy. Did you ask the question? Yes. Oh, sorry, Nate. Yeah, we, we're, just, we're just going to wind it in for our quick fire questions. What book are you reading at the moment? Uh, so 
I'm always in the middle of a lot of papers and a lot of books. Uh, but I would say that, that two that I've been looking at a lot lately are written by Thomas Nail. Um, one is on Lucretius, but it's, it's about uh, an ontology of motion and ethics of motion. And then his latest one is, is on Marx. Um, basically like about, uh, you know, Marx's views on um, motion. It's, it's pretty interesting. And then I'm always interested in, in, in anything in emancipatory. So, you know, critical pedagogy, um, just anything that, that deals with like liberty and freedom and politics, things like that, I'm fairly interested in. And especially right now to the last couple of years, uh, soma aesthetics or somatics, anything with regards to that, I'm spending a lot of time in that. Okay, thank you. Second one, um, does leaving a legacy matter to you? Yeah, I don't think there's any escaping this. We all leave a legacy and uh, everything we do matters. So um, yeah, it absolutely does matter. I think the crucial thing is uh, you know, to, to be aware of what sort of legacy you are leaving. Um, for me, I'd like it to be an empowering one. Like if I were to go today and you know, my kids were to think about, well, how do I live now? I would want them to, to go, well, I just, I live. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna be kind to others. I'm gonna do these things. I would like my legacy to be one where people feel empowered. And so I do think it matters, but I also think that whether or not somebody thinks it matters, it does matter. <laughs> <laughs> and give us, um, give us a piece of advice, Nate, that you would share to, to somebody who, who's maybe new to teaching or, or new and taking their first steps in education, what gem of wisdom would you share with them knowing what you know now or, or having learned what you've, you've learned? I would say really to just look at, you know, and look at, acknowledge the complexity of everything and embrace it and, and spend some time looking at how complex things are. And at the same time, really seek and gain clarity of values and i don't just mean their values i mean everybody's values and which values are we working with which values should we be working with and how do we determine that because i think that's the part that goes unquestioned with teachers is they just jump in and they teach and years may go by where they never really think about whose values are are we working with here and i think that's crucial so i think really looking at looking at values whose values why and then looking at the complexity of everything I think that's really, really important. And uh, I, think, I think that's a nice, nice one to end on, Nate. That brings us back almost full circle to the importance of empathy uh, and to the importance of having positive relationships and, and thinking about the, the complexities of those relationships and the decision you make. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank, thanks a lot for coming on, Nate. Absolutely. Yeah, um, guys, search Infinite Leaders Life on YouTube, IGTV and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you access your podcasts. You can also find us on theinfinitelearners.com. Um, on there, we've got blog notes. We've got articles that we've written over the past five or six months, along with all the episodes of our podcast. Thank you very much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Thank you for having me so much.